before we begin, I want to address two things really quick. Uh, first of all, there are no current plans to look at the movies. I've gotten dozens of questions about that in private messages and comments. No current plans to do so at all. Okay? Making that clear. Uh, <clears throat> second point. A lot of people have been talking about Sinclair and the performance of Michael O'Hara as Sinclair. I don't mind his performance. It is definitely flat. Uh, I talked about that last week. But there's a reason for that. And admittedly, it, it this is one of those, you know, some people are going to have sympathy, some people are going to think it's an excuse situations. I've, I've been debating if I want to talk about the O'Hare thing on this show. All I'm going to say here is that the man was going through some very difficult things with some psychological problems while he was recording, uh, while he was, you know, play, playing Sinclair for the show. The fact that he did that well is amazing, in my opinion. And I still think it works. He is forceful when he needs to be. He is... He comes across as a good officer to me. Um, if you want to know more about what was going on with Michael O'Hare, uh, I'm, you know, I, I don't really feel like it's my place. Uh, even a casual Google search of Michael O'Hare will probably return the uh, JMS talks about the truth situation that happened a few years ago, where he actually says flat out everything that was going on. Uh, you can look into that yourselves. Like I said, I'm, I'm going to leave that be. Wow, it is hot. Mm. Big old coat, right? This coat's amazing. I got this thing for five dollars at a Goodwill uh, in the middle of summer. Perfect time to buy a coat. Anybody who's curious, go to a Goodwill, middle of summer. People are like, oh, I don't need this giant. This is a nice coat, too. But anyways, moving on. Sorry. <clears throat> Let's talk about Babylon 5. This episode originally was supposed to come out pretty much right after The Gathering. And then the network said, yeah, screw you. Um, as networks are wont to do. So instead, it got delayed a year I don't know how if you know understand how ridiculously long that is, but that's a long freaking time. This is one of the biggest reasons why the episode is the way it is. Uh, they rehash a decent amount of exposition because it's been a year in real time since the previous episode came out, and there were quite a few cast changes. Most of those were because actors moved on. They found other gigs or other contracts, or they simply didn't want to be attached to this to a project that had a year in between working periods. I mean, that's understandable. Uh, there will be further actor changes in the future as well, although I don't want to go too much into those, but I like most of the acting changes personally. So, uh, maybe that's just because I got used to them over the course of the series, but I feel like most of the new actors do a really good job of their roles. Now, one of the things that I like a lot that they did, and they do this in basically every space scene, especially every combat scene, is there's radio chatter and just little barely audible stuff in the background to help flesh out the scenes so it feels more like a scene that's actually happening as opposed to something on the play of a stage. You know what I mean? One of my biggest complaints about, uh, well, amateur theater, I'm just going to say it that way, is amateur theater usually has the no music problem for anybody who's seen my Kingdom Hearts stuff. And television tends to have the same problem, especially in the older days, where they would either use way too much music to blare out the fact that nothing's happening, or they would use improper use of music and blah, blah, blah. So it's just a nice touch. Good way to uh, help out the scene without just having blah, 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 playing the whole time. 
Now, as I already mentioned, there's a lot of exposition dumping in this episode about the Centauri, about their biological differences, about the history between the Narn and them, about what's going on with the Minbari, etc., etc. A lot of the stuff that was already established in the Gathering is quickly rehashed here, again, for the reasons I already mentioned. I don't hold that against them. But there are several moments that are clearly where they just took a chunk of text and kind of shoved it into the script in order to get the exposition out. So again, a few more exposition dump moments. Uh, my next note says, and I quote, Veer! Nobody? Okay. Um, Veer's awesome. Uh, he has... Uh, he has some obvious nervousness. Uh, I find myself wondering if that's because he is inexperienced and simply doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, remember, he was Londo was supposed to be sent an entire staff, an assistant staff, and he got one guy who doesn't know what he's doing. The significance of that is twofold. Number one, it shows how Londo and in general, or excuse me, how the Centauri in general have descended to the point where this is basically all they're going to do. This is also emphasized later by the fact that they they plan no reaction to one of their colonies being attacked by an aggressor and conquered. But also the fact that Londo himself specifically is basically completely out of favor. Uh, there's strong implications, and this was in The Gathering as well, that Londo's assignment here as an ambassador is actually a punishment. One other thing I want to point out. I'm not spoiling anything, but this is a thread that's going to keep going throughout the series. They tend to be vague on how much power each ambassador actually has, and that will kind of shift and murk left and right. But that's a good thing. It's actually written very well, I think, because that's how it tends to work in a real situation. Someone who is an ambassador is actually in a position of tremendous political power, even though you might view them as just a, a puppet for you know the, 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 the state of government or whatever. They're the person on the front line actually making the deals and actually coordinating with the other races, and there's a lot to be said for that. And I like the fact that they kind of shift back and forth throughout the show. Um... So Veer, they send Veer, who's obviously inexperienced and has no idea what he's doing, but I find myself wondering, too, if some of his nervousness isn't just because of the fact that he's, you know, he's green, but perhaps also because of the fact that he understands the significance of where he is. Maybe he has the naive belief that he is in an important post. I mean, think about it for a moment. On paper, being assigned the personal attaché to the ambassador to the Babylon 5 project for all of the non-aligned worlds... That sounds like kind of a big deal to me. That's the kind of thing where I'd be like, oh god, really? Even though you're a, you're just a, uh, just an aide, you are still being put into position for a moment that's probably going to be history-making and probably is relevant and significant and has, you know, where you're going to be scrutinized. It just, it's just spitballing, of course. So, I like the, the scene between Londo, Garibaldi, and Vier, because, um, well, Garibaldi, the guy who, or excuse me, Londo, the guy who plays Londo is perfect. I mean, the Garibaldi and Londo stuff was mostly exposition, like I already mentioned. And then Veer shows up and he's like, ah, blah, blah. But Gar the whole time Londo has just been, ah, whatever, it doesn't matter anyways, blah, blah, blah. And then news is brought up about the colony being attacked. And his, he, he just drops the facade immediately. And he gets serious fast. I also like the fact that there's a lot of frustration when he can't figure out what the heck is going on out there. And, you know, he's like, oh, my God, really? Just, yeah. The obvious implication is the professional thing, you know, his, his, the past empires and the glories long gone. As we learn later, there's also a personal component to that as well, given his nephew. But I'll talk more about his nephew in a little bit. 
I will say this, quick question, and this is up to debate. Given how Jakar, remember that Ambassador Power thing I mentioned earlier, clearly has his fingers in a lot of pot, clearly is someone who is not just a mouthpiece for the Narn government, um, given his position and his role, do you think he knew about the attack before it happened, or do you think he was notified of it after the fact? Because both of those are actually feasible, if you think about it. He shows up and he's like, oh, I had no idea. Well, that could be a lie. Or it could be true, and he's just like, ha-ha, this is awesome. Because later on, when he is directly confronted by the fact that it's the Narn, he doesn't, he doesn't even hesitate a second to, to try and deny it. He's just like, yeah, of course it was us. I just found out myself. I personally think he was telling the truth. I think he actually was not informed of the attack until that moment. And then they were like, oh, and by the way, we attacked this Ragash, or Ravash, or whatever colony. Ravash 3? Ravash 3? I wrote it down somewhere. Um, oh, whatever. <laughs> Um, screw him! And he's like, ha excellent. Because again, he has no problem being honest and open about his feelings and thoughts in the matter to Londa, so why lie earlier? Well, on the other side of that, there is a reason for him to lie, and that's the fact that he was in the presence of others. Jakar, just like in The Gathering, is playing at politics a lot. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, Talia Winters shows up basically as a replacement for Lita. Not much else to say about that at the moment. Uh, Ivanova shows up as a play replacement for Takashima. Maybe this is just me and my Russian bias and the fact that I've watched the whole show, but I like Ivanova. Uh, I think she did a really good job of the role. She comes across as very crisp and very military while on the job. But when she gets off the job, all of that drops and you see a person there. Now, that's a nice thing. You, you don't see that in fiction all that often. Usually, if you write someone to be military, they're just military, and that's it. It's rare to see someone who is military while on the job, and then off the job, they're just, ugh. Nice touch, and I feel like the actress does a really good job with that role, too. Um, I was reminded of the fact that, uh, of, of another character in fiction that I rather enjoy, Honor Harrington, and I think the comparisons between Ivanova uh, and Honor Harrington are, are significant. As an aside, uh, I also like how they get across Ivanova's personality very quickly and efficiently. She's just running around, dealing with stuff, no time for anything, just, yes, okay, that's great, wonderful, thank you, goodbye. At no point does she actually come across as rude, just very brusque, because she's working, and I like that. Um... Now, I have a note here about the election. We'll learn a little bit more about how EarthGov works, but it's, kind of, it, it's pretty well laid out even in this. They have a president, they have senators, and all, that senate presides over a republic which controls the planet Earth. Uh, that is the organization I will be referring to pretty much henceforth as EarthGov. There's also the Alliance, which is technically... Uh, a slightly different or organization, but I don't want to get too much into the politics and the, the organizational chart of the Earth Alliance yet. The relevant point is that it is in many ways a uh, democratic republic, a, uh, uh, there's a term for that, um, federalized republic, there we go, a federalized republic where each country has a representative in the Senate, and then everyone votes in order to, to vote for the president. I also like the implication that every human gets a vote. People on the station, individuals on the station, make a point of saying they're going to vote. I don't know if they use, uh, off the top of head, my head, if they use the same system we in the States do, where we don't vote for people, we vote for people who vote, which, by the way, I'm not going to get into it. But um, I do think it's interesting that the people are making a point of, oh, God, i got to go vote. I also want to point out one thing really quick. There's three major th threads going throughout this story. The story of the Raiders, the story of the election, and the story of the Narnalus Centauri. I'll talk more about that later. Um, 
So the Vrt, uh, I also find it interesting that the whole government basically stops for what is effectively succession. Th that is what an election is. I mean, we tend to, to, in the modern era here in real life, we tend to think of elections as a good thing. But ultimately, it is a form of succession. And it is costly and time-consuming and stalls the government just like a succession does. For those who don't know what I mean, uh, r r difficulties and contentions of succession have caused entire wars in the past and have been a huge drain on cur uh, on, on the, uh, the resources and the time and the, the blood of any given nation in the past. The only real difference is there's not a lot of violence usually with elections. We're doing it in a much more civilized way, which, hey, progress. But it is still a line of succession problem. And I do think it's interesting that they make it a point to really emphasize in this episode a little blatantly how much the government of Earth is completely stalled, even in a crisis situation. Now, I know what you're going to say. Hang on, hang on. Wait, it's not a crisis. It's some agrarian world that, that's by the Centauri being invaded by the Narn. Who gives a damn? Really? Why don't we talk about the strategy of that move for a moment? So, what the Narn did was tactically sound. Really, it was. Okay, we, the Narn, we know what the Narn long-term plan is. The Narn long-term plan is, screw the Centauri! What? It really is. So, their best bet in, order, in this new diplomatic climate is to send out feelers, basically. So they find a relatively undefended, relatively on its own area that they could conquer just like that, basically. And they go conquer it. Alright, we've won. Then they sit back and wait. They don't really do much in the way of oppression, even though they want to. They don't wipe out the people, even though they want to. They just sit back and wait. Because this might not work. The Centauri might push back. The non-aligned worlds might push back. We are... This. I'm sorry, but... Jakar, Sinclair's statement earlier, or excuse me, later, to Jakar was right on the number. He, he, first of all, he verbally attacks Jakar right where he should, attacking his strength, implying his cowardice. Remember I mentioned earlier about the Narn philosophy, the Narn mentality? But also his understanding is perfect. He knows that the Narn need to be pushed back. And the Centauri have been refusing, and EarthGov has its election and war weariness on top of that. Now, if you don't understand fully, if I'm not making my point blatantly enough, Earth, France, and Britain, 1938. You have an aggressive power that's claiming territory as a test to see if you'll respond. You need to respond and not just be like, yeah, go ahead, take that one. It's okay. Go ahead. Just one terror, just one planet. It's all good. Because the planet itself wasn't important to the Narn. It was the reaction that was important to the Narn. And we know what the reaction was for the Centauri. The reaction was nothing. Their official response was nothing. And yet the humans, more or less literally in the form of Sinclair, stepped in and, and were like, mm, why don't we blow the lid on this one? Why don't we show the underhanded dealings the Narn have been doing? And we'll go ahead and push you back out or take this to the council where you'll be facing war against everyone. And the Narn wisely back off, because they have finally been pushed back. Diplomatically, but nonetheless. It was a nice move. As I've said before, Babylon 5 has a lot of politics. That's one of the things I love about the show. Um, but I mentioned this all during the election, because again, it is very relevant to why the rules of succession and the, the leadership of the EarthGov is frankly lacking. 
EarthGov should have responded hard during this. And what did he say when he's talking to the senator over and over and over on the VidCom? He's like, oh, just, just delay it till after the election. Wait until after the election. Can we pause until after the election? Just, just wait. We've got 24 hours till the election. He just kept emphasizing that over and over. It's like, dude. Now, I also like Sinclair's respect of the Minbari, which is contrasting certain other people's opinion of the Minbari, but I like it because I feel like he is pretty dead on the node for most of the, the, the warrior cast. Oh, I'm sorry, for those of you who don't know, there are three casts within the Minbari. They have a caste system. Um, the Minbari just kind of roll over you. Their, their strategy is basically attack, attack, attack. They don't really do much for in-depth tactics or whatnot. But on the plus side, that is a very honorable, in a weird way, method of fighting. You don't try to outthink your enemy. You don't try to do a sneak attack or be subtle. You walk up and say, I am going to fight you. And that may be a very stupid way to attack, if you think about it. But it is still, as Sinclair himself points out, a fairly honorable way of dealing with yourself. Um, I also... <laughs> So, I don't even feel like I need to comment on this, but I like the quote, the wheel turns, does it not? It's our turn now. That's that's actually two separate quotes. But Jakar, like I said, he's completely blatant and obvious and, and, and honest. Uh, when he talks to Lando, he's just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we attacked you, yep. It's our turn now. Can't you wait until we are killing your children and sabotaging your world and blah, 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 blah. Um... Yeah. Um, I, I, like I said, that's just so obvious. I don't even feel like it needs to be talked about. The cycle of violence, the cycle of revenge, it's self-perpetuating and always will be until someone willingly takes the hit because they will be hit and then takes a few more hits and doesn't respond the whole time, which uh, is a hard thing to ask of a person, let alone a people, but I digress. Um, it's also one of the reasons why the Horde and the Alliance are still at war over in, over in Warcraft for so long because of that same mindset. Um, Londo writes about his death dream. Now, that is a very risky thing to do as a writer. Because there's only two things you can do with that. Well, three, really. Number one, the dream isn't 100% concrete. If you do that, well, it's a vague prophecy. In other words, something that might not be true, which is, frankly, kind of cheap. It, makes, it, it, it brings up the point, why even bring up the prophecy at all if it was always going to be false? I hate that in writing personally, but I also feel like it is indicative of bad writing. When you have to have this big prophecy that the world is doomed, and then you save the world so the prophecy was false, what's the freaking point? Now, there have been writers who have done good stuff with that, usually about basically the prophecy having been a lie from the beginning. But, you know, overall, I, I really I don't care for that kind of a thing. Second point you can do with it, Play it straight. You know, the audience sees this vision of the future, and then it happens. Now, that's still kind of risky, because you have to remember that. You have to have, like, a notebook somewhere of your visions of the future and be ready to fulfill it. Uh, which brings me to option number three. Play it straight, except there's a twist on it. Um, it's hard to come up with an example of this, this that doesn't involve spoilers, but uh, for any show, for any book ever. But the idea is have the prophecy actually come true, just not in the way you expected it to. Or have it not mean what you think it is. Remember, context means everything. Um, I mention this here because it is a very risky thing to do, writing-wise, to have this kind of a prophecy. And I'm really curious why he decided to go ahead and include this in the story. Um, so, Londo... <sighs> 
He has a quote about paper fantasy of names and borders. All that really matters is blood. And later on, uh, man, I thought I wrote more about that later. Mm -hmm. Oh, looks like I did. Oh, whatever. That is a recurring theme for Londo in this work. You get the really strong impression that he just doesn't actually care anymore. We already know he's something of a has-been. We already know he's drinking in the the the, the great es exploits of the non or excuse me, the Centauri Empire, the Narn Empire. Woo. Um and yet he shows very clearly in this episode in those scenes. He doesn't actually care about any of that. He doesn't care about the meeting. He doesn't care about the business. He doesn't care about the paper. He doesn't care about the treaties. All of that is just it's meaningless to him at this point. It's all old and dead and done. Again, we go back to that resignation feeling that he has. Now, the only thing Londo actually cares about is his nephew. That's really it. This ties back into that professional and personal thing uh, from earlier, and the fact that well, it reminds me a little bit of the great speech in Mass Effect 2. I'm not trying to save the galaxy, I'm trying to save my favorite nephew, ironically. Uh, some people believe that was a direct reference, actually. For those of you not aware, Mass Effect was heavily inspired by Babylon 5 in a good way. Um, so, I, I love the simple humanity of that. That he just cannot bring himself to give a damn about anything. This ties into another point later, which I'll go ahead and talk about now. When he goes to get his revenge against Jakar. He gets everything together. Gets his weapon. He goes after him. And then he is stopped by Garibaldi. And... It takes very little for Garibaldi to talk him down. And why do you think that is? Well, a couple reasons, I think, personally. Number one, I don't think Londo is personally a violent man. Number two, I think that he understood that his attack of Jakar would have led to the death of his nephew. And third and finally, I don't think his heart was in it. I feel like Londo was doing what he felt was his duty as a Centauri. That sort of nationalist pride. I must respond with blood. I gave the whole speech about blood. I talked about how all the papers and treaties don't work. Well, now they've attacked my blood, so I have to attack theirs. And again, it's that resignation thing. It's like, fine, I will do what my job is. I will do what is expected of me, even though I don't care or want to. I think that's... Uh... Yeah. It is also interesting to note that while Garibaldi is talking him down, he mentions that he understands. And he's very honest about it. He's very honest but firm. I will kill you if you draw your, touch your weapon. I don't want to, but I will. There's something about that straightforward honesty that's part of what I like about Garibaldi. He also plays the detective in this episode, by the way. He does a good job of it. Um, you know, figuring out what's going on, the seeking, seeking through the details, that kind of a thing. Um, I also... I, I like his, uh, I like how he tries to insert some humor into a situation where there's obviously none. He's like, oh, no, I would, I, I would kill you. I hate to, because the paperwork's terrible. <laughs> but he doesn't, he doesn't smirk at it. He just says it and leaves it there, trying to uplift Londo's spirits even a little bit. Why bother? Well, we already know Garibaldi and Londo have some kind of friendship going. It may not be a good friends, but there is something there. There's been something there since the, the gathering. But I think the other reason is Garibaldi really does understand the concept of vengeance. He will actually say, this is not a spoiler, he'll actually say later on in the series, I'm an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of guy. 
He believes in revenge. He believes in vengeance. He genuinely does. Even as he's talking Londo down, he says, yes, you know, there will be a response, there will be a revelation. This is not the time, this is not the place, and this is not the way. Save it, you know? I liked that. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why Londo finally stepped out, because he realized Garibaldi was being that straight and honest with him. There's uh, an interesting quote from the Vorlons. They are alone... They are a dying people. We should let them pass. To which Sinclair says, well, The Narnath is Antari. To which the Vorlon says, Yes. Once again, I'm getting that aristocrat vibe from the Vorlons. Oh, these poor, helpless little people. They just don't understand what it's like to be bathed in chocolate icing every day. Chauncey! No, in all seriousness, though, I very strongly get that vibe of casual superiority from the Vorlons and how they're constantly looking down and just being like, yep, I uh, don't think you should exist anymore. It would be for your own good. Not quite malicious, just negligent. Uh, there's, I already talked about the strategy of Ragash 3. I was right. Um, I also like Garibaldi's obvious distaste for the raiders. It's, uh, it makes sense because raiders are basically the total opposite of who Garibaldi is. He's someone who believes in justice and revenge uh, and order and discipline and, and things working right, you know. He's not like a, a, a robot kind of guy. In fact, he's very human. But he also thinks that there is an order to things and that order should be followed. Raiders, by contrast, don't give a damn about anything, will gladly attack a civilian transport and kill hundreds of people just to get at their cargo. They are pirates in the literal sense of the word, for those of you not aware. Um, uh, shoot, I can't think of the actual Latin term. There's a Latin term that refers to pirates as enemies of humanity, basically. It's hostis humani in generum or something like that. I forget what it is. Um, in other words, real-life pirates who are disgusting, terrible, despicable people were, are, eh, debatable. Point being, that's what these raiders are presented as. They are bastards. They have no problem butchering and murdering to get a few bucks. You can kind of see why they're the bad guys here, but also why Garibaldi in particular would hate them so. Uh, one other thing I liked about this episode that they really did better than in The Gathering, we actually see the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. There's several representatives there who actually have zero dialogue. Uh, they will be in the future, don't worry. But uh, it helps flesh out that alien culture thing with Babylon 5. Instead of just being, you know, the big names, there's the big names and there's the little names. It also helps keep that UN parallel going. There's the big seats or whatever they're actually called in the UN. I've long since forgotten. And uh, they're the ones with the, you know, the actual influence and the power in terms of resources, manpower, and uh, technology. But then there's everyone else who has a, way, a vote and a sway as well. And they are relevant to the overall conglomerate of the galactic community. So that's nice. Now, one other point really quick about the nephew, whose name I meant to write down, and I totally forgot to. Londo's nephew. He's obviously reading. He's doing this. Like, I don't know where the camera is, because I've got my monitor off, but let's just assume the... the here, down here, the, you shouldn't see the pads. So he's doing this. And then the thing, and the stuff, reading. We did this. And he's doing this, because he's clearly reading from a, from a prepared statement. It is obvious he's being forced to do it. Why even bother doing so? Well, actually, this is, again, tactics, and political tactics more particularly. 
you're not trying to actually deceive anyone to that that this farce is true. Nobody believes that. That's not the point. The point is to show everyone you are willing to go to these kind of lengths to push your agenda. You are willing to conquer an outlying territory and force its leaders to parrot whatever you say. And if anyone wants to question that or challenge that, they're going to have to deal with you. It is a posturing maneuver, in other words. And if someone had actually pushed back against that, I'm not sure how the Narn would have responded. Indeed, given the fact that when they are pushed back politically, I, can, I stress, not militarily, they do actually back off. So it once again gives me the impression that though the Narn in general and, the J and Jakar in particular is playing a politics quite a bit, they're kind of new at it. Because really all they're doing is playground politics. If you don't know what I mean, at least here in the States when I was growing up, there was quite a bit of political maneuvering that happened on the playground as a kid. The posturing and the presenting yourself and getting people to agree with you. It was all very basic. And when I look back at it, I look at it like it's, it's, it's level one entry level politics. But it is surprisingly effective, especially if you've got a really big stick at your back or a rich father, or parent, or whatever, you know? You have something backing you. Well, the Narn have a big old military over there backing them. They are arguably the third strongest military force in, in this organization at this point in time, and they know it. And they are pushing as hard as they can, just like a kid would on the playground. Uh, a couple points before I finish up and get to the spoilers! We're not there yet. Um... First of all, I love the fact that Garibaldi's second favorite thing in the universe is Duck Dodgers. Yeah, that, I, I'd actually forgotten about that until I was rewatching. I was like, oh, yeah. Um, Duck Dodgers is awesome. JMS was a fan of Duck Dodgers. That's one of the reasons it was included. Uh, and it is also, again, very Garibaldi. I also like that Delenn is the one there. Not, not being able to figure out how to eat popcorn, which is great. But also... Uh, because it, it shows that alien interaction between the two, which, which I love. And, and again, it's something Babylon 5 does very, very well. But also, the fact that she was actually enjoying the show with him, and she is the one who ended up joining him for that. Once again, we see that Delenn is reaching out to the humans. This is the second time we've seen that happen. Now, one last thought before we get to the spoilers thing. Telepaths. I'm just going to say this right now. Anybody out there played Dragon Age? Telepaths equal mages. Pretty direct comparison, really. The only difference is mages can do some very serious large-scale damage, and telepaths usually do much more localized damage. But we have to keep them locked up for their own good. And we and they they are it's not their fault that they are born with telepathic abilities. We just have to keep them under lock and chain and blah 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 blah. It really is very one to one. Rewatching this really helped emphasize that for me. Just to really nail it in, here are the three options you are given as a telepath in Babylon Five. If you're found out, option one, join the Psychor. Option two, life imprisonment. Not sure what the difference is there, but option three drugs for the rest of your life now it's i don't believe it's ever stated outright i could i could be misremembering it's been a while since you know i've watched the whole show but it's very heavily implied at the very least that those drugs which are designed to uh, suppress your telepathic abilities well they basically suppress your brain which makes sense human science human medicine has always been about to be blunt very brute brute force methods of dealing with a problem we don't understand how to chemically inhibit just A, B, and C in the brain, so we'll chemically inhibit 
the brain, because we know how to do that. And, yeah, Ivanova's story about her mother just, ugh. And again, the comment from Talia, I don't feel like I'm a victim, really just adds to the horror of the situation. Remind you, she was raised by the Psychor, so she was found as a child. That's all I got for non-spoilers, so... <clears throat> oh, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, there's one last thing. Uh, this is something Babylon 5 will do a lot, and it's one of the reasons I love the show. The show rewards you for paying attention. Remember how I mentioned there was three plots, the Raiders, the Election, and the Narn and Centauri. All three of these are actually tied into each other, and all three of them affect each other. The Raiders were actually part of the Narn plot, which was going against the Centauri. The Narn and the Centauri plot was being delayed and stalled by the Election plot, and... Well, I guess that's it. All three of them weave together, and this is something Babylon 5 will do a lot with its story arcs, not just per episode, but as an aggregate. Now, um, I've been debating if I want to talk about the telepaths here, and I've decided not to. One thing that will be a feature sometimes in Babylon 5 is af right before the spoiler section, so like the second half, you know, we got the normal stuff, this thing, and then the spoiler section. Right in the middle, I may just pause to discuss some of the more philosophical problems uh, that are driven up, that are that are discussed in Babylon 5. As I've said before, uh, I have a long-standing rule of no certain subjects being discussed on my show. Babylon 5, I pretty much guarantee you, will violate that rule. I will be violating that rule because it's impossible not to talk about certain things. The telepath problem, just like the mages in Dragon Age, are a real problem with no good solution. But I don't think we'll talk about that today. What we'll, we'll talk about is... Spoilers! <laughs> That's all you get. I'm only giving you the three from now on. So, first spoiler, I want to talk about the Raiders. For those of you who have watched the show, you know the Raiders are very small-time, chump-change villains who basically go away by the end of the first season. So why include the Raiders at all? And I've heard some people ask this. I mean, why even bother with the Raiders? I like to think of it as the Lotro comparison. Lord of the Rings Online. Good game, by the way. For those of you who haven't played that game... The story quests for the first several chapters all deal with these bandit groups. And after a while, you start to find out that these bandit groups are coordinating with each other. And after you go a little further into the storyline, you find out that they actually are the same group. There's one organization of bandits. And by the end of that, you find out, spoiler alert for Lotro, I'll give you a moment to silence me here, they're being run by Saruman. The point is, the storytelling there was, was it's, a, it's very, very uh, textbook, but very well executed. You start with a little threat, and you show how this little, and so the, the audience, the characters, the protagonists have to deal with a little threat, but then you reveal over time that it isn't a little threat, it's actually part of a bigger threat, which is part of a much bigger threat. And this is what the Raiders will be throughout Babylon 5, and I think it's a good job they did that. Because the Raiders are very small time, but they will become more and more involved with everything, throughout the course of the show. I mean, even in this episode, they have already been involved in uh, the Narn Centauri War, if only tangentially. Or not war, but you know what I mean. We're not at the war yet. Uh, so, re-watching that conversation between Ivanova and Talia, oh, that made me just sad. Because Talia is control. And they're talking about, you know, the Psychor and the evil of the Psychor and oh god, and I don't feel like a victim and Oh, now I know, I know. Control is effectively a totally separate personality from Talia Winters, but the, the, ah, that just hurt rewatching that, especially given the clo the fact that the two of those will end up coming close over time. It's just oh, that's horrible. 
Uh, one other, I've only got a couple spoiler things today to talk about. Uh, one other thing I like is the fact that there were several hints dropped about the Mars colony situation. Um, the fact that the Mars colony is not fully with EarthGov, and the fact that there's already been bloodshed over the Mars colony. That'll come up later, as you, of course, know. But I like the fact that, once again, they're hinting at that they're, they're planting the seeds early. Speaking of planting the seeds early, this is another one of those things that I missed until this replay. Um, I, I wonder if that's going to become a regular thing. Oh, I totally missed that. Uh, Ivanova talks about how she distrusts the, 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 the two candidates, President Luis Santiago and Vice President Clark. That was nice. I, I admittedly completely missed the fact that the two people... I mean, the whole thing is like, oh, they're voting based on their chin, and oh, yeah, that's such a commentary on how voters will vote based on appearances and not, you know, issues or whatnot. But I like the fact that she's like, no, I, I feel it. I can't trust them. She can't trust Vice President Clark. I love that. Anyways, that's all I got. That's all I got. Hope you've been enjoying. See you next time, guys. They caught up with my mother on her 35th birthday. She didn't want to join the Corps. Didn't want to go to prison. So they gave her the treatment. For 10 years, a man in a gray suit came to the door once a week. And he gave her the injections. They were strong. Terribly strong. Every day, we just watched her drift further and further away from us. The light in her eyes just went out bit by bit. And when we thought she could go no further, she took her own life. I'm sorry. What happened back then is not your fault, but it's part of what you are. And yet you're as much of a victim as my mother. I don't feel like a victim. No. And so far I cannot tell if that is good or bad.